Welcome to Day 2 Cloud today. We've got a sponsored show coming at you from F5 Networks, the, uh, the NGINX team within F5. And we are talking today about Kubernetes operators, the, the humans, the people that would be titled Kubernetes operators. What'd you think of this show, Ned? I thought it was really interesting how they approached what an operator might be responsible for. And it's more than you might think. It's not just updating the cluster and making sure nodes don't go down. Uh, they really dug deep into the fact you have to support the application teams and the security teams and be very mindful of versioning within the Kubernetes cluster. So that, that's what jumped out to me. Yes, please enjoy this conversation with please enjoy this conversation with Jen Guile, senior manager of product marketing at F5 Networks for the NGINX team, and also Brian Elert, Senior Product Manager. Brian and Jen, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Thank you for joining us. And Jen, first question to you, what is a Kubernetes operator? Because we're talking about a human being, right? Yeah, we're not talking about the machines. We're talking about the people. And so the uh, Kubernetes operator, which uh, we've seen called a lot of different things. You might have seen it as a cluster operator. Uh, it's kind of analogous to what we would have called a sysadmin in the pre-cloud era. So uh, we're seeing a lot of different actual job titles for people who are in this domain. Um, it can be a cloud architect. It could be an SRE. Maybe there's a general IT ops title. They're probably part of a larger org. Um, maybe they call it a platform ops team. And so in terms of the job, the job description we're looking at people who are responsible for Kubernetes as a piece of infrastructure. So they're gonna be helping other teams run Kubernetes. They may have um, planning and monitoring responsibilities, scaling, resilience, larger tasks, anything that's gonna be helping the business um, run Kubernetes. Okay, so the difference would be they're not deploying applications necessarily in the cluster and babysitting those applications. They're responsible for the health management and monitoring of the cluster as a whole. Would that, would that be a correct? I'm going to say you're partially correct because it really depends on the size of the team and the company. A Kubernetes operator could be your entire job or it could be part of your job. And so like if you're in a really, let's say small company, a startup where people do 50,000 different things, you might actually be doing both. Uh, in bigger teams, it's probably your sole job, whereas the people focused on, you know, the code are somewhere else. Okay, so that begs the question, at what point in my Kubernetes adoption lifecycle does this role actually become useful? I would say, and Brian, I'd love to hear your thoughts here too. Um, I think it really depends on how invested you are in Kubernetes, how complex it is, how big it is, what are you doing with it? Uh, how many services, how many teams? Uh, Brian, what do you think? I, I'm going to look at that a little differently, Jen, as, <laughs> as, being, as being somebody who grew up in, grew up in IT a long, long time ago. I, I'm going to say that it's, it's a useful skill set to have and it's a useful, useful focus to have whenever you start your Kubernetes journey. Once, yeah. once your business makes a commitment to, to Kubernetes, you need somebody in there that has a clue. It's the same way we looked at virtualization back in, back in the day, right? I mean, you know, back in, you know, back in early, early 2000s, uh, you know, when we were, when we were, you know, working, working with VMware without a GUI, for, for example, you know, but it's, you, you get, you get into the same, you get into the same type of, same type of thing, but because it's, it's the skill set, it's the accompanying skill set, you've got virtualization underneath, you've got Kubernetes above that, and you still have relationship to storage and networking and compute and, and everything else and, and all that goes in that. So when you say someone with a clue, that's 
it sounds like you're try you're someone who understands infrastructure and all the components because just because we've abstracted stuff away doesn't mean we don't need to understand storage and networking and all of that. Is that what you're getting at? Absolutely. So there's there's definitely a skill set here, especially when you get into problem solving and troubleshooting, right? Because you still have in the Kubernetes world, yes, you have you have Kubernetes taking care of things. You know, a, a pod runs out of memory, it gets it gets recycled, right? But obviously somebody has to realize at some point in time that that the resource limit or what's going on in that pod is a bad thing. And they need to be they need to be able to have the skill set to investigate that. And yeah, it's running out of memory because the resource limit is is too is too tight because that's how we set that in the Kubernetes world where the VM might be fine. The node might be running along perfectly happy and not and not have a clue in the world, but but the pod's crashing all over the place, or a storage driver might be might be misbehaving or or something like that. So you still you still have to have the skill set in order to be able to troubleshoot these things and to kind of look at it as a system, right? Because you're not just looking at looking at one specific thing. You're not just focused on a single application. There's more to it. You're still managing an infrastructure stack, an application delivery yep. stack of, of things that happens to come under the common heading, the umbrella of Kubernetes, but all those components that make up that stack are still there. There's one fine distinction I want to understand here, though, as we define this Kubernetes operator role Will that operator be deploying applications, writing the YAML or kubectl commands, et cetera, that are going to deploy the app, describe it, and so on? Or, or will that person be strictly focused on, on cluster management? How many nodes do I need to have in the cluster to, to handle the load and so on? We see both among, among our customer bases. So generally, it's, it's involved in all the above, right? Mm. There's portions of the configuration that are that are handed off to the app team, right? As we, as we think about the Kubernetes API and all the various objects and role-based access control and, and whatnot, there's certain aspects of configuration that are given off to, to the app team. But a lot of the operators that are responsible for the infrastructure, they're also responsible for deployment onto the infrastructure. Hmm. And that, that's, that's just a common pattern that, that we generally see among, among our customers. I asked that it partly in the context of the certified Kubernetes administrator program, because part of that training is you're deploying apps. That's part of what yep. they're teaching you to do. And, and and like I say, you get you get down into other aspects of that. And some some shops dole that out. So, you know, as you get into specific aspects of networking, there might be certain aspects of ingress configuration or something like that, that the app team might own because they might own the pathing and the rewrite rules and 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 some other things. But yet the deployment that's owned by the operator individual who is also part of the same team of operators that's responsible for keeping the platform healthy. Okay. So it's not just a matter of knowing how Kubernetes at a cluster level works. And it's not a matter of having some general knowledge of, of networking and, and storage. You also have to have some domain specific knowledge around writing YAML and deploying manifests. Oh, yeah whatever other technologies they might be using, whether it's Helm or, or something else to get that deployment done. And it's, and it's interesting when you talk about apps and, and deployment, because most of the infrastructure bits that manage Kubernetes run on Kubernetes. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's like an inception thing, right? So as you, <laughs> as you add infrastructure pieces to Kubernetes, guess what? Not, that's an app that you're deploying on top of Kubernetes to, to, manage, to manage Kubernetes to, to a certain degree. So yes, you're going to run into all this stuff 
anyway, even though it might not be the customer facing application or what a dev, dev team is producing or some other some other thing that you're doing there that's paying money for the business, right? This is this is part of what you need to keep the world running. Right, right. It's turtles all the way down. Right? Exactly. <laughs> it reminds me a lot of back in the VMware days. We were all there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When uh, when I first started using it, your vCenter would run on a separate physical system, but then eventually everybody moved their vCenter inside the VMware cluster. And that was like scary because now you were running the thing that was managing the thing in the thing. And it was like, oh no. Just just don't let it my, migrate, live migrate itself and you're okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, that's never happened to me. Anyway. <laughs> so uh, what additional skills would you imagine someone who's looking to become a Kubernetes operator, what additional skills should they pick up or focus on? Um, you know, we see a lot of uh, people focusing on what we've talked about so far, you know, building the apps and everything. There's the the hidden stuff, the not as flashy or fun stuff that sometimes we call the plumbing. It's the networking parts. It's your traffic management stuff. It's your visibility and monitoring. And, you know, Brian, like you said, it's not quite the same as it would be outside the cluster because you're probably dealing with YAML and you're dealing with Kubernetes native tools and they don't perform in the same way necessarily, or they have different names, right? So for example, if we're talking Kubernetes networking and traffic management tools, there's this little thing called an ingress controller and why they decided to call it that, uh, you know, is a longer story, but in kind of layperson terms, it's a fancy load balancer. And so you need to know, you know, having all that, you know, knowledge of using a load balancer outside of Kubernetes is definitely going to serve you because you can be thinking about the load balancing algorithms and the, traffic that goes through it, but also understanding um, how that connects into the services and what kind of information that you can get, you know, realizing that you're looking at L7 traffic management at that point. And so it's it's often you're going to have a similar skill set, but a new vocabulary. Right. I, one thing I want to focus in on a little bit is the visibility and observability tools that you need to have for Kubernetes because it is a different paradigm. And the example, Brian, you were giving of a pod keeps recycling itself because it's running out of memory. You need a way to pick up on and realize that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Undesirable behavior, right? Well, right. And, and, and there's and there's other behaviors that, that happen. I mean, you know, that, Back in the day, virtualization admin, the, this the skill set was was an art form. It was it was more it was more art than science, because <laughs> there was just there was there was things you knew. All you know, an app was behaving badly, and you're in a terminal server situation, right? And you kind you kind of you kind of picked up these things, and they were they were self observed skills. It's like CPU throttling in a Kubernetes environment. Only the pod knows that it's being CPU throttled, right? Outside of that pod, no, nobody, nobody has any any clue that these things are going on. So, a, a lot of it is 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 you have to get the vis- visibility, but then you have to learn and understand enough that you know what to look for. You you know you know the actual signs to to look for to understand what the symptoms are. It's still CPU and memory, isn't it, Brian? In. It, there's there's limited resources, right? <laughs> it always comes down to the limited resources. Check the physical layer first. That's that that all that always applies. But we're looking at it different, right? So we've got 
we've got physical hardware underneath. We abstract that away with virtualization. Now we pile Kubernetes nodes on, on top of that and we're running containers. So we've got all these different layers of abstraction that are going on there. We've got networking level abstraction at two levels. We got hardware level abstraction at, at three different levels. And then we get into the complexity of you start to look at a node as a system and how one pod actually impacts another pod or some, or, or you know, just the load on the system as a whole impacts everybody else that's on there. So it's it's just it's it's part of this whole art form. And I and I do call it an art form because I know that there's that there's you know so much you can learn through certification and whatnot, but then there's just the hands-on that you have to do these things and you have to have some understanding of the world around you. And that's where you get into the art form and the skill set that I think really, really makes folks excel. Now if I am a competent network engineer and I bring that network engineering experience to the Kubernetes domain, is that going to serve me well? Or is it more like I need to unlearn so that I can think correctly about how Kubernetes moves packets around the cluster? It's, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, st they still move around the cluster, but it's, but it's different. It's just like when you, it, you know, it's, it's just like, you know, the word cube proxy, it's not a proxy. Everybody gets stuck with the word proxy in their head, but it's, but it's not a proxy, but this, the basic skills apply and the basic rules apply, but how you go about troubleshooting it is different. It's just, it's just fundamentally different because of where you are. So, so I need to take my networking knowledge and then take some time to learn how Kubernetes moves traffic around the cluster, how it flows from client uh, into well, the ingress controller, whatever the term is, into the container that's actually going to serve up content and then back out. Once I understand those sorts of patterns, life's going to be better for me. Yeah, yeah. To start out, to start out with, and then you get into the complexity of service meshes and ingress controllers and how you expose your services and yeah. and people start to talk about egress rules, you know, egress now and and whatnot. So it all it all plays. Now, do, do I have to get into tools like Project Calico and there's several other different projects that could be uh, delivering networking services for Kubernetes? Is there something like that I should focus on or just start with what Kubernetes gives me out of the box? If you're just starting with Kubernetes, right, go, go with what you get out of the box. If you have, I, I, look, at, I look at when you get into, get into the CNIs, when you get into things like Calico and Flannel, that's where... That's where the networking team, you know, the folks that are not the Kubernetes platform team is now getting involved in Kubernetes as a stack. And they want to get greater value out of Kubernetes as a stack from a networking perspective. So there you can get into the more complex things that, that projects like that do. It's just like you can, Jen mentioned ingress. You can start Kubernetes without it, without ingress. But at some point in time, somebody's probably going to want the flexibility of, you know, header rewrites and, and path reroutes and a few other things. So then you, then you introduce ingress. And I think that's one of the great things about the Kubernetes world is you can layer in the tools as you need them. Something else that jumps out to me in the world of Kubernetes and the skills involved, Kubernetes itself is an orchestrator. It likes to do things in an automated way. Yep. And so as an operator, I got to imagine that understanding automation and being able to wrangle that is going to be huge for, for part of your job. Workflows, right? It's, it's all, it's all, it's all workflows. I mean, what workflow engines were, were all the rage, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, everybody had, a, had a new workflow engine, right? And we get to it now and you look at, you look at the Kubernetes system and we take it for granted that it is a whole huge amount of coordination under the hood as this eventually consistent 
system is you define what you want through YAML and then Kubernetes just makes it happen for you. Some people are they're like, it's magic. Some people don't take the time to ever understand what's actually happening. They just know that they get their result out, out at the end. But sooner or later, somebody has to understand what's what's going on there. Now, there's there's a lot to learn here. Um, obviously, Kubernetes is a wide and, and vast sea uh, that you could get lost in pretty easily. What do you have any recommendations if someone is just starting to learn to be a Kubernetes operator? They have that goal in mind. What are some ways that they can get gain additional knowledge? I'm a big fan of use case based learning. Um, thinking about something that you want to achieve and you know, going out, studying that thing and implementing that thing, because you can look at theory all day, but if you're not putting it into practice, it's, I mean, it's nice, but it's not going to help a whole lot. So, you know, let's say you're probably not starting off with a blue green deployment, but that's the first thing that popped into my head. So if that's what you're starting off with, great. Focus on studying that part, focus on all the components that go along with it. And, you know, for now, maybe don't worry about something else, but there's still going to be those fundamental things that you do want to study. And so I would say, you know, starting with the basics of what Kubernetes networking is and how it's different from, you know, more traditional networking models. What's a node? What's a cluster? How do these things move around? How, do, how are they connected? What are the ways that I could move things around? So that really good foundational knowledge before getting into the use cases. So this this use case method that you describe is pretty common. A lot of us do that. We have some problem to solve, some itch to scratch, and so we'll dive in and make the technology solve this problem that we have. Okay. With Kubernetes, uh, most of us that are going to be trying to scratch that, I need to learn Kubernetes itch, we'll come up with a project that's not going to be some massive scale thing. And so is that going to be good enough? Like, say I want to use Mini Minikube on my laptop to learn that. Is that adequate to teach me what I need to know? Or should I really be looking at multiple physical nodes so that I have a, a real world sense of how Kubernetes does what it does? I mean, I think something like Minikube is a great first step. You know, if you're, if you don't have access to those multi-node clusters immediately, start with what you do have access to. But, you know, look at, let's pretend you have the job already. And mm -hmm. this is the case for a lot of people we talk with is they implement Kubernetes and they're like, Hey, you, you look like you should be able to do this, get in there. And so, <laughs> you know, there is that on the job learning of what is available. But if you are thinking about architecting Kubernetes long-term, you know, you're probably thinking, okay, today I only have a single cluster tomorrow. I might have five. And so getting into some of those practice environments with multiple clusters is going to be key for sure. Now we're kind of implying running Kubernetes on bare metal too. It's sort of kind of the context of this conversation here. But what about uh, managed Kubernetes services that are on the sundry clouds that are out there? Yeah, I mean, they definitely make it easier to get started in a lot of ways. There's a lot of plug and play functionality that makes something, you know, from a, a cloud provider Kubernetes to something like Rancher or OpenShift. Uh, we have a lot of customers choosing to use those because you can get up and going faster. Um, while they all have slightly different names and processes for things, they all do the same thing at the end of the day, right? It's all Kubernetes under the hood. I mean, they, they, they might have different interfaces, for, mm -hmm. for example. I mean, you'll, you'll run into that. You'll run into that too. So it's always, the, the fundamentals are generally the same. The fundamentals all relate and it's it's just 
Okay. So your company standardizes on one over the, over the other. So you're just going to be used to seeing, to seeing their interfaces is really what, what that ends up playing out to be. What I'm hearing is rather than start with Azure Kubernetes service, let's say, start with doing it on bare metal and then go to the, the, the cloud managed service. It sounds like the better way to go. Yeah, I would think so. And we do see some people choosing to go back to bare metal. And so even if you know, hey, we use Azure, I should just lose, you know, learn Azure, there could be a future where you won't be in that case, or you may be adopting a different cloud. And so yeah, bare metal is great. Yeah, we recently had a conversation that was talking about exactly that you, you may think you're only going to ever use this one cloud. But the reality is, that's probably not going to be the case. So having a, a good understanding of the general concepts beyond just what the cloud offer, what a particular cloud offers you is going to be very beneficial to you. Do either of you have an opinion on the uh, the CKA program? Uh, an opinion or multiple opinions? <laughs> I mean, multiple yeah. opinions is great. Give us that <laughs> nuance, Jen. Um, at risk of slightly repeating myself, hands-on is great. Hands-on is what's going to give you the most, you know, both education and value. But that said, we both work with a lot of people at F5 who pursue the CK and find a lot of value in it. And we see a lot of people in the industry who have it. And so my view is it's really great to pair with some real world experience of, you know, it's kind of like really any certification where it can help you learn the language, you know, get the the high level context before you have to apply it. We hear great things from our colleagues who are pursuing the CKA. Um, a particular thing that gets mentioned fairly often is doing study groups along with the CKA yeah. and, you know, learning from other people, super valuable. Brian, I know you have thoughts on this one as well. I have thoughts on certification in general. So, I, I mean, <laughs> so when, when, I, when I was in ops, I was all about certification when I, when I was, when I was in it, right. Because it's the way, it's the way you prove yourself to, to your manager. Some sometimes great tool, the CKA I've talked to people that have gone through and passed the CKA. And they're like, I don't know how I would have passed that without some actual experience. Like, like it's just a little too hard to, to be just book learned and theoretical about, right. You actually have to go through the paces and do the things and actually understand what you're doing to, to, to pass the exam. And from that aspect, I think it's a really good, a really good rigorous certification. I, I can second that as someone who has failed the certification. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I was fairly close on it. I just wasn't fast enough. I think that's what, what I learned is you not only need to know the stuff, you need to know it pretty intuitively uh, and be able to, you know, type things out quickly in a terminal. And if you can't do that, uh, you're going to struggle passing. Um, but the process of studying for it did teach me a ton about Kubernetes in general. So I think it was definitely beneficial, even if I didn't get the certification. Yeah, those time tests are a whole different conversation, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, another thing that we have in our, in our list here is Microservices March. That's not something I'm familiar with. So Jen, can you tell me what Microservices March is? Yeah, we kicked it off at Nginx last March. Unsurprisingly, it's called Microservices March and it happens in March. We kept it kind of easy there. And the whole point of Microservices March is it's a time when our group focuses kind of our outward um, programs, uh, resources, et cetera, on a microservices topic and provides that education to the community. And so for this year, the topic we've gone narrow is on Kubernetes networking. And the reason we chose that topic is because we do find 
a lot of the people that we work with, um, whether it be people using open source or looking at commercial products, they are adopting Kubernetes without that skill set. And it causes problems, right? Um, the things that we hear from people who are already in Kubernetes are things that any survey will probably tell you as well. There are security issues. It's complicated. Scaling it is hard. Knowledge is often something that people call out. And so what we've done with Microservices March this year is made a four-week free program where people can come and learn kind of the very beginning of Kubernetes networking. You know, what is a node? What is node port, load balancer, et cetera? Uh, progressively up through, you know, okay, what do API gateway use cases look like in Kubernetes? How can I deploy those? What can I do with it? What kind of tools? Um, spoiler, it's not the same as doing it outside Kubernetes. Uh, you know, how do I make my clusters secure and resilient? So that's not just adding a WAF, but that's authentication, rate limiting, the like. And then, um, you know, advanced scenarios, canary, blue, green, service mesh. Um, we talk a lot about service mesh and, you know, it's, I think just about any conference you go to these days, it makes up half the, uh, Kubernetes topics that are in there, which makes it sound like everybody's using it. But what we're going to be talking about more is how do you decide when you're actually going to get some value out of using a mesh? Cause it adds a lot more complexity. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Service mesh is something we've covered a few times before on the show. And the, the end result of most of those conversations is, well, we're not using it yet, but we are thinking about it. <laughs> or uh, I don't think our use case warrants it, but maybe it will in the future. So it's definitely, maybe it's a, it's a goal we're, we're moving towards. And then I think one of the titles of one of our episodes was, you don't need a service mesh. Yes. I think I yeah. listened to that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're probably right. I, most people don't need one, right? Uh, as we're earlier in Kubernetes like usage, if you're not complicated enough, if you're not doing a lot of automation, you're probably not going to get the value. Right. But it's like, you don't need a service mesh until you do. And yes. being able to recognize that moment when you, okay, I have enough problems and service mesh solves those problems. Well, and thinking about those problems from day one and thinking, okay, I just launched my first cluster. I don't want to mesh right now. I don't need a mesh right now, but what will it look like in a couple of years when I do? Mm -hmm. Right. And how do you, how do you put it in? Mm -hmm. uh, that leads, you mentioned one thing that people run into a stumbling block uh, was scaling problems. So uh, what type of scaling problems do you see folks encountering that you're going to help them understand better during microservices March? Yeah, it's kind of ironic, right? Because that's the whole point of Kubernetes is to help you scale. Um, where we see the most scaling problems have to do with limitations based on how they're handling uh, the traffic moving through the system. So if, for example, you're trying to do all of your um, incoming traffic using something like the load, uh, load balancer object, it's going to start to have problems at higher volumes and you will be limited in what you can scale. Uh, Brian, I think I'm going to pitch it over to you because this is something I know you think about a lot and talk to a lot of customers about. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can look at scale at scalability a lot of different ways. We have some customers that are that are extremely latency sensitive with the with their applications, right? Where every single every single hop matters. Mm. Even every every nanosecond matters. And we have other customers with other with other types of APIs that it's 
it's not it's not such a big deal, right? So it, you you get into scalability from from different aspects. It's just like if you if you deploy certain infrastructure pieces, do you do I do it do it as deployment? Do I do it as a daemon set? You know, and what are what are the implications of of doing those things? Do customers allow their clusters to auto scale horizontally, right? Dy- dynamically add nodes. Do we have we have one customer that I was talking to recently? Um, they're setting up ingress controller, but they actually want it to horizontally scale from tens of pods to hundreds of pods in order to, in order to handle what their bursting is. So you get into some of these some of these scaling scenarios, and you can kind of slice and dice them different ways depending on what the situation is. But there's there's always all kinds of scaling. So we want to maximize what we can what we can do, you know, in the pod through the through the throughput. And then isolate what then comes down to either either design, you know, t- topology design. This is where we get back to what's what CNI do you choose? Because that that might have some impact. What, you know, how do you actually model it within within your environment? Because that can actually have some impact. So and, and you now, know, another side of the scalability has to do with functions, non-functional requirements that are built into your your services, your apps. Yep. We see a lot of people building in like authentication and authorization into the app. And that works fine if you have one and you know you're not updating it all that frequently, but it can start to cause limitations on how you're able to develop those apps. And so it's kind of a different way to think about scaling, but thinking about what are the non-functional things that I can offload off that app. I don't need that app to handle authentication. That can be done by Kubernetes traffic management tools, just for example. Right. That leads into security issues and dealing with various security problems that might crop up. Uh, I know that's something that you mentioned as well. Um, I'm going to throw this one over to Brian. Uh, What should people be learning about or mindful of when they're assessing security in the context of Kubernetes? Oh my, we can, we can, we can get into, we can get into so many things here. I'm, I'm going to avoid like CVEs, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but at the same, so generally we talk about, you know, we, we talk about networking, right? So we talk about application, application level security scenarios, but there is, we get into all the aspects of things, right? So you, you get into, you get into CVEs and base images and, and platform and platform security and isolation, all the same problems that we've dealt with in, in operations for years, right? So it's, you know, isolated and, and those kinds of things, but you do get into some unique things with, with Kubernetes when it comes to a, to a security perspective, because you can deploy all the same tools, right? So you can, you can put a WAF at the edge of your, at the edge of your cluster. If you really want to do that, you can put a denial of service product at the edge of your cluster, as in it's right there in your cluster, if you if you want to do that, we have scenarios these days where we see more customers moving workloads into the cluster. So something that they might have used a load balancer before, as in outside the cluster, they're taking those functions and moving moving those into the cluster. So we can talk about security from an app perspective, like Jen mentioned early on. You know, OIDC and JOT authentication and you know, tunneling traffic and where service mesh comes in with MTLS and whatnot, or we can talk about, you know, migrating functions where you're reducing your layers as you, as you have through the system. So there's lots of, lots of different ways to, to think about this lately. 
We're that's- seeing a lot of people um, have requirements uh, for end-to-end encryption. That's becoming pretty prevalent, you know, especially if they are subject to kind of uh, some kind of zero trust architecture requirements. And so thinking about implementing end-to-end, you know, it's different in Kubernetes. There's more, more things to get to and getting it between the services. That is when you start to maybe consider needing a mesh for those specialized use cases. The complexity here is somewhat endless. You said zero trust and my brain started going, and how would I bolt on zero trust to a pod architecture distributed throughout the cluster? I don't know that I've seen... yeah, there's a lot to that. It's 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 a, it's, a, it's a thing and something that that companies are starting to to wrangle with, right? So the so the zero trust advisory out of the White House recently. So there are areas that are trying to think about zero trust in a Kubernetes world and what that means what that means for the business and then what it means to what they can accomplish when it comes to Kubernetes, right? Because we have the flexibility to bolt on sidecars, for for example, and, and a few and a few other things, because the platform gives us gives us those capabilities. But now we've got trade-offs with with performance because we're adding hops into the system and you 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 get into some of these things. So how much can you squeak out of this to to align with that business requirement over there? So you had opened up this bit on security talking about WAF, Brian. So so let's map WAF functionality onto this architecture. You would describe maybe WAF at the edge of the cluster. Does that mean it's the front door to the cluster, but it's not a part of the cluster? As long as I can get through the WAF, then my request will make it into the cluster and be serviced? Or WAF functionality like in the cluster itself? Yeah, well, you can you can do it a couple different places, right? So generally, we think of we think of applying when we think of it at the edge of the cluster. So traditionally, we're used to WAF being some appliance that some network person takes care of, right? That's out outside the physical cluster. I have been so blessed to have done exactly that. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and now now that we have. We take the capability of ingress, right? And now we can take those that WAF capability and move it into the edge of the cluster itself because that's basically where, where ingress sits is at the edge of the physical cluster. If you want to think of a traditional network topology kind, kind of model here. And the only thing after ingress is internal is internal Kubernetes networking within within the network, right? So whatever whatever your CNI is behind that. So we can we can stick WAF there. We can stick a denial of service product there, and you could still have one way out at the edge to do your to do your major protection. But we can also bring API specific settings and tunings right into the edge of the cluster and apply additional rules and additional protections there. So you might have behaviors that get in through your first level because of the gross level that it's doing there, but we want something finer grained now and that's better tuned to the application right at the very edge of the cluster. Now, going back to the conversation, what is the role of a Kubernetes operator? As we begin to layer on these additional services, the amount we can expect one human being to do, it becomes untenable after a while to have them do the WAF and the cluster management and app deployment and so on. And so I'm suspecting some of this is going to be the larger the org, the more fine-grained not just our policies are, but our roles and responsibilities are and are going to be spread out across multiple people and maybe teams. That's where we're starting to see these larger organizations adopting a platform ops team model where they have multiple people. And yeah, they may have some more focus. You know, there might be someone who's only focused on these WAF policies and security policies, and they're not doing other things. 
and you might have, and you know, you just go back to the Kubernetes API, you might have the security object is the responsibility, you know, the security policy object for the WAF configuration is the responsibility of the security team. The operator, you know, the platform operator, yeah, he makes sure that that the thing's deployed and that and the WAF's running and, and whatnot, and the security team takes care of the rest. The application team takes takes care of their, that piece. We're also seeing that, I mean, just the true role-based access control model happening through the Kubernetes API. We're starting to see a lot of that in the larger customer enterprises as well. And the more fine-grained the security policies need to be, the more that becomes a necessity because it becomes a, a knowledge domain expertise challenge. One of the challenges I had dealing with WAFs is I didn't build the web app and it was protecting some custom web app we developed internally. I don't know how to sanitize the field input for this. I don't even know what the app does. Be Something to do with finance. No, and that's about as much as they tell me. And, and there was this frustration of having an expectation that, hey, network human, you need to run this WAF. It's like, well, I can put traffic into the thing, but I don't know how to build the policies. That's a domain expertise I don't have. That's got to be someone else working with me to get that policy delivered. And it feels like very quickly we can get there with, with a Kubernetes cluster as well as we layer mm -hmm. services and services and services on top. Yeah, I mean, security operations is finally starting to become a thing. I mean, and it's and it's it's definitely a specialty that's starting to show up. And within the Kubernetes world, it's it's a little unique just because the way the way things interplay. I mean, it's a bit generic, but at the same time, it's it's a bit unique because they still need to understand how it how it applies in the world. Right. And they need to be involved earlier on in the in the conversations when the design is happening and the developers are are working on their application, because that's when the security team can you know pump the brakes on something or help you know, they can start designing the policies that will go into the WAF that's going to help the application team. Exactly. We've talked to a few folks that are, you know, building platform teams are on one. And one of the things they keep telling me is their main job is to empower the application developers to do things on their own by giving them solid templates. Is, is that something that you're seeing out in the wild as well? Yeah, we generally, we generally talk to a lot of customers about this it, as a mode of self-service. It's, it's generally, generally the terminology that it's using is in, they're enabling they're enabling their teams, whether that be through custom resource definitions, whether that be through through GitOps and them directly managing YAML, like I say, certain aspects of, of the configuration. But for larger companies, enabling self-service where where we truly become more of more of a utility, you know, network becomes a utility, Kubernetes compute becomes a utility, where we think of operations as a utility is definitely a trend, a heavy trend that we see in larger organizations. Right. Still set up some guide rails. <laughs> exactly. Guard, guard, you know, guardrails, not gates, you know, that, 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 that whole thing. So. <laughs> uh, beyond empowering the applications teams, are there any other scenarios uh, you can think of that the Kubernetes operator is making things better for the folks consuming the cluster? Yeah, Kubernetes version management control is a whole thing. Mm. And it may not sound like it, uh, but there are typically at least three distinct things you have to think about if you're going to be changing your Kubernetes version. So what just came out? 1.22? Am I a version it's behind two, something? 2.3. Are we at 2.3 already? You are, you are behind. Good grief. Um, so let's say I'm going to adopt 1.23. It's not as simple as just moving to that platform version. I have to look at two other things, at least minimally. 
So one is going to be the APIs because with each version, new APIs are added, old ones are removed. Um, and so, for example, if you upgrade the platform without looking at the API, you might break some things. The other area is what are your tools that are compatible with that platform version? So if you, again, upgrade the platform, but let's say your ingress controller is not compatible with it, you're hosed. So with the uh, operator, what they can do, or somebody, anybody really, who's responsible for keeping an eye on version management, but the operator is really at a great place to be doing it, is they're working really, really cross-functionally to figure out what are all the things that are going to be impacted, who are all the people who are going to have to go in and update resources or policies or whatever the case may be. And that that's not a, you know, one-week project in all likelihood. You know, it's probably a okay, our goal is to adopt it in a month or two. Let's, let's make a plan today. So they can be really helpful for that. And that's a really good point, Jen, because Kubernetes releases on a regular schedule. They, they release, I think it's four versions, four versions a year or three Roughly versions a year. quarterly, right something like that. Some, they some, dropped some, it down to three now. now it's yeah, they, dro- they dropped it down to three, but it's, it's just, it's continuously sliding, right? And they only main... And then they have their standard deprecation you know, schedule and, and whatnot. So basically, you're constantly updating the platform. And the Kubernetes API objects are updating right along with you. I mean, Jen brings this up because we recently ran into this with, with Ingress. It graduated from V1 beta 1 to, to V1. And it's like, oh my gosh, now we've got to be compatible with V1. Customers have to be compatible with V1. There was this beautiful crossover period where objects were magically updated in the background through the Kubernetes API machinery that a lot of people didn't realize they get this free pass during. But as soon as that, as soon as the removal happens, they don't get that anymore. And if they didn't realize they needed to upgrade their, update their YAML files, I realize it might just be a simple version string and everything else stayed the same. They upgrade Kubernetes and boom, all of a sudden it's broken. So, I mean, there's, it's, it's a, it's just an interesting mix of things that you actually have to pay attention to. Unlike, you know, the traditional enterprise world where it's like, oh yeah, is that thing supported on that version for five years? We, we don't live in that kind of world anymore very, very much. So. Yeah. Uh, having someone who's paying attention to even just which versions are supported you don't want to end up in a situation where your cloud provider forces you to upgrade and you're not ready for it. And we've seen it happen. We, we had it, we had it happen to some customers. Um, so-and-so cloud provider actually updated our clusters under us. And what do we do? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that sounds, that sounds messy. Um, so yeah, it sounds like if you, you need to have someone who's mindful of the version March of versions and getting in and, and, you know, monitoring what's compatible and what isn't. Uh, that almost sounds like a full-time job on its own if your clusters are big enough. Could be, yeah. yeah. One thing I want to come back around to is this microservices March, because we touched on it briefly, but I want to get a little more detail from you, Jen, on what's included in this one-month program. Uh, is it a free thing that anybody can sign up for? And, and what expectations is there of the person taking it? Do they have to attend webinars or is, what's the, 
give me the give me the general background on it. Absolutely. So it's designed to be a choose your own adventure. There are no expectations. It's completely free. So if you were to do everything, it's roughly 16 hours over the course of March, which if you're kind of planning for that four hours a week, that's manageable. Um, so I'll kind of just go over what the units are and then what kind of you get to do with each unit, what you can choose. So the first week we're going to be looking at architecting uh, Kubernetes clusters for high traffic websites. And that's sort of our introduction. You know, if you're already super familiar with uh, how traffic flows around Kubernetes, maybe you don't need to go to the first week. If you already know how to use an ingress controller and, you know, you've seen it scale, you're probably okay skipping it. But if you've never done that before... Uh, you'll start the week off um, by attending a live stream. We're working with a Kubernetes training provider called Learn Kates, and um, they're going to be doing the training part. So you start with a high-level webinar uh, live so you can ask questions. Then after that, you're given a collection of uh, kind of extra reading and videos so that you can decide, you know, I knew all of X, but I didn't know anything about why I want to go learn more about the gateway API, or I want to go learn more about ingress controllers. You can go do that. I'm not going to tell you which part to go learn about. And then the third part uh, is going to be a hands-on lab where you get to take what you've learned. And again, this is going back to that whole, uh, you know, concepts are great, but without practice, it's kind of useless. And so you get to take that and do a little hands-on exercise and so the first week is going to be deploying an ingress controller, running some traffic through it, watching it scale up and down. Pretty simple, but important stuff. Um, so each week we'll follow that same format of live stream, reading and videos, hands-on lab. So the second week is on exposing APIs. How do you deal with API gateways? The third week is going to be looking at microservices security pattern, sidecars, service mesh, WAF, all kinds of fun stuff. And then the fourth week is on advanced deployment strategies. Basically, uh, you got the whole thing up and running. How do you keep it there? How do you um, roll out a new app version without you know, taking everyone offline? Um, it includes access to our Slack community, which we've just recently stood up. We've been wanting to do it for a while. And we thought, you know, this is a really great time to bring in a whole bunch of new people to talk uh, nerdy stuff on our Slack, which is what we want. And so, yeah, basically full commitment. If you choose to do the whole thing, it's only 16 hours, opt into whatever you want, very much fits whatever your needs are. Right. And, and the most important part for me is you get hands-on experience. It's not just watching someone talk to you through a screen for 16 hours. That's, uh, that's not my style of learning. <laughs> I don't think that's anyone's, but <laughs> I could be wrong. And, and speaking to that, it, it sounds like if I get into the Microservices March program, the hands-on lab, that stuff's provided for me? Or is it bring your own Yeah, metal? it's all free. So we're working, um, we've done this in a way that uh, really caters more to people who are not necessarily interested in standing up Minikube on their machine or, you know, going full lab environment. So it'll be a browser-based lab. Um, it's all self-contained. And so in some ways, uh, you can still break it, certainly, but it's going to be, again, the guardrail terminology. We're making sure that you're not going to just have a total fail with something that's not relevant to what you're supposed to be learning about. So it's kind of that dip your toe in the water 
Uh, we will offer a version of it where if you want to go stand it up on Minikube on your own, have at it. You can do it completely outside that environment. Okay. And if folks want to sign up for it, is there an easy URL to remember? Or there they- is. Okay. Uh, it is nginx.com slash MM for microservices. So microservices March. That's pretty easy to remember. <laughs> I appreciate that you kept it very short and brief. I like it right. easy. Okay, nginx.com slash MM microservices March. I am uh, thinking about going in for that one myself. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Jen, if people want to follow you or reach out to you or Brian, is there uh, uh, somewhere you'd recommend they go? Yeah, I mean, we're both on uh, the standard social media, but where we do most of our writing is on the Nginx blog. So that's nginx.com slash blog. We kept it simple with that one too. Uh, you can also occasionally find us over on the new stack. Excellent. Well, thanks to both of you for joining us today on Day 2 Cloud. And thanks for sponsoring the show. We appreciate that. Ned and I, we got hungry families to feed and, uh, and you guys help us to do that. Virtual high fives to you out there listening. We much appreciate you staying through to the end. And if you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit Ned or I up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow or fill out the form on Ned's fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. And if you like these engineering-oriented kind of nerdy shows, you can go to packetpushers.net slash subscribe, and you're going to get a list with a bunch of links of all the different podcast blogs and so on, our newsletters. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development, and it's all free. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. (laughs) 